Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey there, it's Aaron Noonan Noons. Great to have you with me. Another edition of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Redco. This week, part two, it's more of Larco. Mark Larco, episode one, was a full focus on his 1995 Mitre 10 Falcon, the car that had amazing technical insights and some great thinking that went into it, but it just didn't play out how it hoped to be. If you haven't heard it, it's a cracking story. It's a cracking ep. Go and have a listen before you listen to part two. If you've listened to part one, then you're good to go for part two. On this app, we focus in on some other topics. We talk about Larco's favourite V8 race car, that famous Oran Park 2000 accident, and what happened to that very car. We talk about the metal grate from China. Remember that in Shanghai? It could have sliced Mark Winterbottom in half. Larco reveals what happened to the grate as well. Your National Motor Racing Museum couch race questions and how Peter Brock, this is a good one, committed his time to help Larco's career in his younger days. A lot of people will remember Larco driving one of the Mobile One uh, Ford Sierra RS500 Cosworths, but something extra that Brocky did for Larco that you might not know that he talks about in this episode. So enough of me, let's get to Larco. Buckle up, time to start Mark Larkham on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco, part two. Of all your cars in that V8 era, you know, Mitre 10, Orcon, it's pretty much it 10 years pretty much of that period. What's your favourite? Is that your favourite because of all those stories and all that stuff that we it? I mean, it would have caused you heartache and pain and grief at the time, but is there another car along the journey that's got a, you know, a soft spot in your heart or one that was a real standout? Or Rather than a favourite car, Noons, probably a favourite time. So that mm. period when we were designing this car, before we came across the failures of it, the the enthusiasm and excitement to approach a project from an engineering perspective and every single thing on that car to look at, to study, to understand how you could do it differently, better, or it's fine how it is, was a really, really exciting, you know, if, if you're into competing or competition, you're trying to find an edge because that's the game we're in. Um, that was just a just a great time, just inspirational. But you know, towards the end of that, then it got tough. So, but that mm. early period, um, that was a that was a magnificent period. But you know, look, you know, Stone Brothers uh, El later on was a great car to drive. Then our own AUs later on, because I went obviously to Stone Brothers, then back to my own uh, team, which. Which we then that time around carried, I think, a lot of the Stone Brothers mentality and learned about making bits the way they did and what have you, which allowed because I've always wanted to be, you know, I've always kind of be my own team owner sort of thing. So it was always inevitable I went into Stone Brothers that I was going to pop out the other side because um, we maintained my own franchise and I still end up having my own couple of people within their team on my car. Mm. Um, and when they went and built their new facility and moved up here, we thought that was the appropriate time. They went and I stayed where I was with my. Own team, so those couple of you know the the AU that the Morris crash that got crushed and the one I've got now uh, rebuilding, um, 
I got a bit of a soft spot for those because both of those cars at different times were genuinely competitive. And I guess, you know, as a race driver come team owner or a team owner come race driver, that's what you're here to try and do. So, you know, we weren't competitive enough times, but uh, on enough times we, we were competitive and that's, you know, that was cool. You just mentioned before the thing that really hurts and upsets people when we've you've given me the photos and we've run them on the website before of that Mitre 10 Falcon flat, flatter than this kitchen table, the car that was in that Oran Park crash because we get asked, and as you know, and you've been one of our great supporters with the V8 Salute thing for a long time, we get asked a lot by a lot of people about a lot of different cars and that Oran Park crash comes up a lot about because the – the Paul Morris car, the big Kev Commodore that you sort of inspected with your bonnet, um, is being restored. Like after 20 years of sitting around, it's having the whole rear end redone because it was Craig Lowndes' championship winning car from 98. So the thing, you know, if you looked at it on the day in the photo sense, you'd think, well, that no is going to sit like that as a wreck forever. So that's coming back. Yet with your thing, though, She's gone. If anyone comes out and says, oh, I've got Larco Zora Park 2000 car, I've fixed it, yeah. we call bullshit because well, exactly definitely not. Well, because that, you, you yeah. showed me before we started this <laughs> the cam's rollover uh, chassis plate off it that's about the only thing that's left from it. I've got that, yeah, before we ran that excavator over it. And and we didn't do that. Uh, and listen, for the people knowing, I've been a big supporter of the sleuth for a long time. You have. Just so people know, listening to this, such as this guy's knowledge and wisdom, I would ring you. How many times did I ring you from the bend the other week, mate? What, no, five or six over yeah, the weekend? That's right. Just, that's what I'm there to no, do. No, no, but it's the, the knowledge is deep. So so let's just talk about the bend in, in context here. So Brad Jones's car, I went and did a little piece on that, right, because I and straight away I didn't look at the damage. I dived under the cover to have a look back into the car. And that was great insight. I love that sitting on the couch because that was the governing element of how big that was. You got to look back into the car. How far back into the car that went? So, Brad's car. You can see the drivers. The, the drivers. Sorry, the left hand door. The cage work in there was crushed. You know that's oh. now to put it in context. The reason we crushed that Falcon of mine, and I didn't do it. It wasn't an easy decision to make. But there was no way that car could have ever been rebuilt, mate, because the 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 tubes were crushed all the way back to the rear shock towers. <laughs> Such was that impact. So if anyone ever rebuilt that, even if we kept it and rebuilt it, it was never the same car, mate. Yeah. It was a different car. So and, we didn't. And if even if it was fixed as a show car or, you know, just there to look at, someone somewhere somehow might just be unable to help themselves. So Yeah, well, it's the phase four story, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's... Um, uh, you know, uh, I know I knew Hotto well that used to race that Phase 4 and uh, there's so many good stories about the Phase 4s popping up everywhere. But, look, the only regret I do have is if I was, if I did keep it, I went to Paul Morris's museum one day many years ago and I saw his crashed one there and I thought, ah, oh, bugger, you know, I should have given him the crash car because he could have tucked it Put them together. In, in the butt he of the could've. other one and <laughs> that's how it could have sat, you know. And, and, that would have been a cool oh, little display. That would have been, what a display, what that, an exhibition of yeah, that, actual. But, but, but as it is, mate, you, you back then, you know, you're having a lot of money, so we needed the bits out of that car. So it was, excuse me, there was nothing left anyway, mate, because by the time you pull the engine, gearbox and the running, the stuff that still was good mm. uh, and serviceable, um, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't much left. It was, the, it was the structure, it was the cage that was gone. One of the things that springs in my mind, and we get asked about this one a lot too, is the year that the championship went to China. And you, you'd retired from driving at the time. You were a team owner. Frosty's a lucky boy. 
when that when that car got peeled open like a can opener when the 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 concrete the curb whatever it was that came up and he went over it and it ripped a hole in the car and very nearly him like that's that's wild that was so lucky from what that could have been that that could have been one of the most horrific human injuries in a racing incident in history like seriously it was um, it did about 100 grand's worth of damage to the car. Like it, it went through. I've got photos of it. You've probably seen them. I can mm. give you some more. Oh, I remember the photo yeah. at the time, the press shot of Frosty under the car it. with his head poking through the hole. Yeah, but what you didn't see, it started at the front. So from the splitter, the front cross member, the bottom of the radiator, the bottom of the sum, it, ju- it just went like a, a knife right through, right through the fuel cell um, aperture at the back. Just, just went through a receptacle, sorry. I've still got the grate. I kept the piece of grate. Ball. It's out there in my shed. Really? Yeah, I might. I don't know. Should we eBay it one day and donate some money <laughs> I reckon to you, I reckon you'd, there'd be some good coin to be had from No, that. I don't, I, I don't do know. You, hang well, on. How did you get that back? Did well, they I remember, first you? of all, going and drafting into the office of the Chinese guys running the show over there and having a crack at them. Like it was a faulty circuit design that just cost me hundred grand. So I was trying to get some dough out of them. How did that go? Oh, what do you reckon? Not good. They just had no interest. Mm. No, we don't, we don't understand. You know, they, oh, don't, yeah, they yeah, didn't right, even right. want to hear me talking. Mm. So that was disappointing. Um, so I brought the yeah, I put a, the grade in someone's freight container and and brought it home. I'm not sure why. I don't know what I ever do with it. Well, but, I, oh, it's a piece of history. I, I guess it's a piece <laughs> of history. And you figure, well, if I'm not going to get any money out of them, I'm taking the grade. Yeah, and for people that don't um, haven't can't or haven't visualised this, if you imagine a, a butter knife going from and putting it up, you know, two hundred millimetres into the base of the car, from the front to the back of the car, and just slicing it through everything, mm. and it went through. So where in a, in a race car seat, your butt is the lowest part of the seat because your legs sort of go upward from there. So your butt and your balls, if you like, are sitting right down there at the bottom, and it actually took a chunk out of the bottom of Mark's seat, right? The seat had a chunk out of it, like a mm. knife blade, like we're talking millimetres. Is it your coccyx back there, whatever it's called? Your bum bone. Yeah. yeah. So like millimetres away from like it just would have split him in two. would have been awful. Oh. So, um, yeah, that's a weird one. Can Made we talk, talk is there something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's get back to the three sisters and me and Adam playing in the band. <laughs> Did you split the 180 bucks each night? That's what I want to know. Does the singer get more because he's, you know, he's the front man? No one he was star. singing off tune like I yeah. was. He got less. <laughs> Wait, uh, one of the things we do, um, which has been a really popular part of these podcasts, is our National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer Questions. The museum up at the mountain, I mean, I'm yep. sure you've been in there and had a yep. look over the journey. They do an awesome job. They've got so much um, history, so many cars, so many bikes, so much memorabilia. Actually, they've got, and we're really proud to play a little part of this, Remember the the Chas Moster crash at yep. Bathurst in 2015? Huge crash, right off. Clearly, Chazzy got injured, and we the learnings from that crash have come into the the cars ongoing to protect the the left leg from the gear stick and and that type of stuff. Now that chassis sat at what is now Tickford Racing, it was Pro Drive at the time, out the back of the workshop on the top of the fuel dump with the same with the other wreck that Steve Richards had the big crash at Eastern Creek head on. 2008, and the Stephen Richards wreck got junked, it got flung. And we heard about this and we thought, well, they better not fling the other thing because that's, wow, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, piece of it's a mangled wreck of tubes and stuff, but it is, it's a piece of history, like it'll lump it, it actually is. So we brought together the museum, we brought together Tim Edwards from Tickford, and 
between everyone, they have, you know, the, the car, the leftovers of the car have been at the museum ever since in the last couple of years. So if you haven't been there and you haven't seen it, you can go and have a look at it. So there's some cool stuff there is what I'm, what I'm saying. Absolutely, absolutely. So this means that as part of the couch racer questions, the couch racers, the viewers, the listeners mm-hmm. get to ask some questions. And you know what? We've got a learned bunch of sleuthers out there. I'm sure. And they've got some corkingly good questions. So a couple of little ones that I wanted to fire at you because one of these actually, and this is from Cameron um, Cameron Hay. This is on Facebook. And it's actually pertinent because, I don't know, it's like you knew I was coming or something here. You've got all your race helmets here, or a, a really nice selection of them. He's actually sent a photo onto our Facebook page he wants to know about the inspiration, the ideas behind your helmet designs because he's always been fascinated by them and clearly some of them have got a meaning, some of them are just cool. And he's put a photo on here of what was the go with the shark fin wing because there was <laughs> – I remember this in your Mitre 10 era with that big fin yeah. on the top but you, you you put a lot of time and effort into the designs of your your helmets, your cars, your liveries, all that stuff. Um, what what inspired a lot of this? What, what, what made you so arty because – you know, we've seen you on a whiteboard. We know, we know you know how to draw, and you, you got that artistic flair. I, know. Oh, I, don't know very, I don't know if I'm any good at that, but I've have always enjoyed sketching and graphics and proportion and all that sort of stuff. So it's, I've got to say, it's been helpful in a racing career. There's a lot of design stuff that has to happen, with, particularly with liveries. And I mean, we could do a ten podcasts on the challenges in a modern race car livery that meets the commercial expectations of all the sponsors that want their own graphics against their own background colour <laughs> on different parts of the car that are on the camera more than they aren't. And it's a whole minefield of stuff. And uh, so the helmets, which you see there, Noons, I only just dug out recently. They've been in boxes for 20 years. I kept a helmet from each period of my career. Um, and you can see the very f- that's the very first one I put on when I started Formula Ford in 87 and I was always inspired by the Graham Hill type design. I was going to say, yeah, I, I, that's what I took straight away. So it's it's a yellow helmet. It's got like, – he had the British Rowing Club yes. white and black yeah. around the top and you've yeah. got, you've got uh, blue and yellow. And, and back then design. it wasn't uncommon, was it? You know, an Alain Prost, a, a lot of the helmets back then had some sort of circular design going mm. on on the top there. A lot of those guys back then had the little Marlboro or Camel thing at the front of it. <laughs> and, and lots of money that went with those a stickers lot of as well. That, that, that so I sort of started there and then um, I, I got a little arrow going on the side of it next, in the next year's part of a design sort of going forward and a bit inspirational or whatever. And anyway, long story short, that, that design just evolved to um, – uh, what happened back in there? I was sponsored by Arrow. I was very fortunate. Pee Wee helped me, Pee Wee Siddle helped me get that deal. And many of us back then, well, not actually, no, fortunately for us, but not many of us, but I remember Dick, uh, Crompo, Scafi, there was a bunch of drivers that were sponsored by Arrow. So those helmets were painted in the factory in where Japan. the helmets in Japan when they yep. made the helmets, clear lacquer. So unlike now where you take them to a painter, they were done, finished, beautiful when so, they arrived here. So they're, they're factory units really yeah. in all, every sense of the word. Factory units, right? Yeah. So we're very privileged to, to, to have that. And I'm, in fact, I'm not even sure that it happens anymore. Mate, I'm sure it happens in F1 level, but um, I'm not sure right here. I think everyone pretty well goes and gets their, their quirky their design painted by the local airbrush yeah. guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some pretty cool stuff out there, no doubt about it. But when we got into that Mitre 10 period, I actually had a small sponsorship deal, which is sort of clothing a bit of apparatus with Troy Lee Designs. And they were big in motocross at the mm. time. A lot of the motocross guys were wearing that little chrome aerodynamic uh, foil, if you like, chrome foil on the back of their helmets. Looked now, like a shark fin. Yeah. Like a shark fin. Um, I've got no idea what it did in their world. And in my world, we always called it a VEA. 
which stands for a visual visual enhancement aid. So it didn't do anything else. It did sweet FA, mate. <laughs> it did. It was just it was nothing more than a point of difference. <laughs> Inside a, a tin top with a roof and a windscreen and a window, it's not doing anything. Uh, nothing more than a point of difference. Because you know, I mean, even in the modern era, mate, you, you know, your helmet's very much part of your your character and who you are and how you present. And um, I say to any young driver, you know, how you how your suit design works, where you put your sponsors on it, how you you know don't put your sunglasses over the sponsor on your cap, you know, for a free mm. set of sunglasses. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. So, you know, it was just part of, um, you know, being a little bit one out and one back, nothing more. Dale Rogers, who – remember Dale Rogers? I remember Dale well. sport Now he ran yep. Revolution Race for a long time. He, he, he fired in a question – so everyone fired in a question when we said <laughs> we are going to come and talk to you. But he said, ask him how he used to design his race suits and team gear and what he used to send me. It was brilliant. So there you go. There's some cred. Yeah, that's what nice. you're doing good on your Yeah, was Dale was a right. great partner to work. He was running Revolution Race Team at the time, uh, Race Gear at the time, um, and I was previously sponsored by Stan Twenty One. So I was using Stan Twenty One suits from France, which a lot of F1 guys were doing, and Revolution were doing these suits, and they were getting better and better mm. and better. I got to a point where Dale. Come on, mate. Let's you know we can do this here. You want the challenge? So I gave him the challenge. So I got the pens and pencils out, and we did the first, you know, the uh, the the sleeve cut where the sleeve wasn't attached to the suit like yeah. they were doing in yep. in Europe at the time. It had so that we did sort the, of offset. Yeah, type a bit of an astronauty looking thing. Yep. So so it gave you much better flexibility with your arms. So we did the early versions of that, and uh, but then I just used to chuck these designs. At, <laughs> Dale every year. Oh, no. Um, and I've, I've kept a suit from every year. And um, and I don't, I don't want to talk up my own designs, but they were, I mean, They're we're good. lucky. Oh. We, we, we worked with great colours and great sponsors' logos. So I think that helped make the designs look good. But we had some pretty special race suits back then. And and Dale did a spectacular job of, mate, he delivered every time, right through to the Orcon suits. I mean, they were, we threw them some tough challenges, you know, mm. it was, um, and they just kept delivering, which was cool. Um, Adam Jonathan's got a really interesting question here. Well, actually, we all have – we just have interesting questions. We <laughs> don't get done questions. Yeah. Uh, who would you have liked to have paired up with at Bathurst that you never got a chance to? Which sort of leads me to think, what deals didn't happen? Was there anyone along the way that you tried to get out? Because there was always talk of bringing internationals out or trying to get a deal with this guy or trying to make that happen. Was there anything along the way that, you know, that didn't come off and could have come off or – yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit it's, of sliding doors, you know. That it's sort of an stuff. interesting question. Um, not look, I don't think there was ever anyone that I would have liked to have partnered with that I couldn't because they were in a car at the time anyway. But but around uh, ninety nine into ninety nine, we were trying to v- grow to two cars, uh, and I was in contact with Marcus Ambrose at the time, and we, you know, discussions got fairly advanced. Um, I couldn't ultimately raise the funding, sadly, to get to two cars because he would have been a good get because he was doing well in Europe at the time and um, looked like it was possibly might have come home, all the rest of it. So, um, you know, and you never know, had that have been able to happen, where that might have gone. And look, Noons, on on that point, and again, it's a, it's a whole other topic, but that therein lies the reason ultimately I got out in 04 and sold my team because – Trying to raise a budget every year to be able to go and then pay for the level of engineering and then to go and recruit a Lowndes or an Ambrose or or a Tand or whoever it might have been back then. Um, on the and I was selling all the real estate on my car for what I know was market value, and in fact, a lot of it today would stand up. 
but it was nowhere near enough money to be able to do the things that we needed to do. And that's that's probably the bit that frustrated me, but you've just got to accept as the sport grows, it gets bigger, people with, you know, a bit more wedge come in and they can sort of run a team alongside their own other business interests and all the rest of it where every dollar came on our car was the only dollars we had and it had to pay for the dyno, the leasing of the truck, the renting of the factory, the, the just just everything. So... Um, and, and and I don't mind saying back then, mate. I think we were about somewhere between three and four million um, when when I got to two cars. Around that point, you need about six, six and a half minimum to be competitive. Um, so you just got to, you know, there's a realization there that well, I've sold all the real estate on my car. There's no other source of funding. You remember, I tried to actually bring a partner in to try and find a partner. It's to exactly the team. what I was about to ask you. That I remember that you talked to the press at the time about that you were open to an investor or someone. To get involved, well, is there anyone that it nearly happened? Yeah, or? there was. I, I, you know, I'd rather probably just park that in the drawer. Yeah, there, yeah. there, there was a couple that, that didn't materialise, sadly, at the last minute. But you know what? I, I, did, I didn't want to get out. I loved what I was doing, but you just got to read the writing on the wall, Mark. You, you don't have the financial aptitude to carry this on. And I thought, well, the play here is to actually get someone to buy into the team, you know, that had some commercial clout and some commercial savvy so we could go on because, you know. Um, Why didn't you ring me? Oh, I was like 14. No, no, I was, it's a bit old now. Oh, uh, no, definitely not, definitely not. No, but I, I mean, it's, mate, it's, it's the evolution of the sport, isn't it? Yeah, and and, and yeah. to go right back to the start of our conversation, the owner-driver thing is now finished. You know, we have team owners that own teams and drivers that are employed as drivers. I mean, the game's mm. moved on. Yeah, I know, that's just. How it is? That's life. Um, <laughs> Peter Taylor asks, "Who is your favourite trucky, me or Wayne?" <laughs> Great question. Great. You're going to upset one and make another one happy here, well, or make um, them both unhappy. All, all I can say, Peter, is that um, I love every one of the staff that's ever worked for me because um, I'd like to think that Larkin Motorsport had a particular culture. I see a lot of. Brad Jones Racing in Larkin Motorsport and vice versa. Brad yeah, and I are good mates. Yeah, that's a good mates. call, I reckon, yeah. um, I, 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 I won't claim much at all, mate, but I will claim I reckon we punched above our weight for a lot of years. We are a small team. We had to run lean. Um, we had to do things efficiently. Um, and I, I see Brad and Kim, you know, when Kim was around down there, just uh, they blow me away how every year they keep funding that team and mm. keeping that thing and, you know, occasionally they put a car right up the front there. I mean, I think that's just... Phenomenal. So love all the truck drivers, but I but I've got to say, I, I if I've got to be brutal honest, I do have a soft spot for Wayne. Oh, I still <laughs> see him in the pit lane every other weekend, and uh, pretty close to Wayne. He's a, a good guy. Something else that's very cool that uh, it was almost like you knew I was coming to get your helmets out here, but you didn't. You, well, you're, I didn't you're already no. doing. You're already doing it. There is a couple of trophies lurking around here, and I couldn't help but spot one, and it's really stuck in my brain. And you should take a photo and send it to Neil Crompton. Which one, mate? It's the Gold Coast Indy Trophy. <laughs> he still moans about the Watts linkage in the oh. Ford Credit Falcon when he was leading. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he's never really got over Not that, has he? So, um, I think there was 94 pages in his book on that alone. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing just on the – I mean, mate, we do so many podcasts. We can do a podcast just talking about Crompo without him here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, but, it, but the, I mean, you talk, there, there's a guy that was conflicted, you know. We, we've obviously, as you are, we're very dear friends, have been for a long time. And I remember having a chat with him, and he would have had a chat with many people at the time, but was about that just that period where he, he got to that point in his career and he was competitive and he had to make the decision is he going to be a commentator 
full time because there was there was no more room to be both. Mm. And he was. I remember. I just remember how conflicted he was because he loved driving so much and he was competitive. Um, uh, but you know, he we're having a great battle at the IndyCar race there. Uh, I was ahead of him. He got by me going into the chicane, and just as he got by, his Watts linkage broke, and Watts linkage kneeled to this day. Because I mean, there's a guy that should have more trophies in his cabinet. Mm. Um, and there's one that got away, and here I have it right here. So, there's the trophy. There's the cabinet. Um, I'm looking so at it. Suck it up, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just so easy to make fun of him, isn't it? It's, no, we love him dearly. We love him dearly. Uh, we did get a few questions about this, and I think it's one of the uh, – it's a really um, – I remember watching this on TV at home and we got asked by a lot. So it's clearly stuck in the brains of many people and you just talked about Bradley so it's a, it's a really nice link. It's that moment in that 98 Bathurst when you guys drove together and the car ground to a halt on the pit straight and you're trying to crank it into life, crank it into life. It's happening live on TV. Bradley's in tears. Uh, it is a really powerful moment. It's one of the ones that sticks out in so many V8 supercar fans' brains mm. and we've got a lot of people asking, they've got so – Fond or not fond, they remember that moment so much, but they don't actually remember what went wrong. Mm. Like they don't remember, they just remember the whole won't start, won't start, grr, grr, Lee Diffie in commentary. He's back in the game, he's back in the game, away he goes, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. It's amazing, the stuff that sticks with our fans and our, our amazing, viewers and our followers from stuff that's 24 years ago, but yeah. people can still recite that to you to this very day. And it's nice, and I and and thank you for those people because it. it I feel like they were on the journey with us that day then if they've remembered it because it, you know, we, we've all got the story. And I, I can't talk about Bathurst in my regard without thinking of Glenn Seaton, you know. I just I was watching something the other night. Glenn Seaton should have won Bathurst, you yeah, know. For sure. Just a great talent and a great guy. Um, so, you know, I don't feel so bad that we didn't win it, but that was the time. There's a couple of years there where we, we were genuinely competitive, you know, 97, 98, 99, 2000 were probably our years, those mm. four years. Um, but that particular one, we genuinely thought we could have won that race and I think that's why it hurt so much. So the car just died, right, just literally stopped and we are trying to work out what it was and we are resetting things and I was talking – and it was Campbell Little, if I recall, jumped on the radio in the end and it was a, it was a relay had tripped. There's a, there was a bunch of relays on the dash there and it was a fuel pump relay that for whatever reason, no particular reason, didn't do it again. Just did it. Now, if you go back, you know, and, and again, everyone's got the story, what if. Yeah, sure. If you look that's at the- part of the story of Bathurst, and that's why we love the sport so much because it's these things, I've got to be honest with you, mate, it's this stuff that fuels what we do. It fuels V8 Sleuth. Yeah, the coulda, woulda, shouldas and all that. Yeah. But it's not that, oh, woe is me. Everyone has those stories. Everyone has those stories. Yeah, yeah it and doesn't that make was our any one, different. You know? yeah, I mean, we add yeah. up the numbers and we thought – where we were on fuel at that time, where we were on tyres, where all of those things, we were absolutely in with a crack to win that race. And we didn't, you know, and that's mm. it. But again, mate, I, 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 do, I do, I find it awkward talking about that without letting Glenn Seaton step right up into the queue ahead of me and say, no, no, mate, mm. you need to have won it three more times before I worry about winning it because, um, you know, great guy, great talent, mm. should have won that race. Oh, absolutely. Um, Roy Clark, he said, look, I know you're a big Ford man. You have to be blind not to know that or, you know, we, we know which what colour your blood is. But he seems to remember that you had a 67 Chev as a daily driver. <laughs> true <laughs> or false? Would he know, how the hell would he know that? True or false? Absolutely true. Pillarless. Right. Pillarless Impala. 
Right. Um, yeah, yeah. When I was at the Smithfield factory, you know, we I used to drive it. We were out on a farm out further. I used to drive it in there every day when fuel was cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. That was a long time ago. Well, it's a funny thing. I, I had this chat with someone recently, Nunes. I said, we should do a, a, um, a little, just a fun chat amongst each other about our early cars, our first cars. Now, <laughs> I, I might dis- disappoint a lot of people, but, you know, when we, even with Commodore finishing up and when Holden left the spot, we're all sad when Ford left it because I've been a Ford guy my whole life because my dad was a Ford guy. Mm. But but we all love Holdens, mate. And as an early bloke on P plates and L plates and early, mate, I had Holdens like we all did. Oh. First car, HT Holden. They made the people are turning <laughs> off the pod right now oh, in disgust. Sad as it is, mate. Oh. HK EH Holden, HQ Holden. Um, seriously, uh, just that's uh, how you rolled back then. What was your very first? HT sedan. Oh, beast. Yeah, then HT Ute. HQ that I rebuilt my first motor on, rebuilt the V8 on it. Um, EH Holden, really hot rod. EH station wagon. I'm courting my wife then, who's um, she still remembers the red velour in the back of that. Um, <laughs> that's what you used to, you know, studs and red velour as you're back in those hot rod days. Top notch. Well, top well, notch. you know what I mean? But, the, but, mate, that's where, you know, for me, love of vehicle comes from. And that's, again, here's another chat. But, you know, you, I, I often contemplate where, you know, forget all the energy issues, where, where does, what drives young people into motorsport in the next 20 years? Because we're all driven into it because, you know, and Scaife and I sit around drinking beer talking endlessly about the, when we're young blokes, you know, and him and his dad at Wyong and working on their cars and it's what you did, you know. Now you go and buy a modern car now, you don't do anything to it, not even a stereo. It's, it's a white good, I mean, really. we're putting triple carbs and we're putting K-Max suspension on them. Remember all, all of that stuff went lowering them and cutting springs and it's just what you did and then you drove them and, and and you just were deeply in the, the automotive thing where now for me this is where karting will play a bigger role because it'll be a choice as a sport to participate in rather than a love of automotive that drags you into the sport. Does great that make point. sense? Yeah, it's a great yeah. point because the world's changed. Yeah, so that says to me we can't sit around and rely on young guys and girls to just love cars and motoring and working on cars to come into the sport. So we need to be more active in the karting space to make sure we feed a lot of kids into there to enjoy it. And, I mean, what a healthy sport to get in. It will preoccupy all your time that you'd be doing bad shit otherwise in <laughs> um, and just a really healthy place to be. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online. Thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Corey State, this is a good question. Oh, by the way, you said EH station wagon? Yeah. Oh, my Both dad. Sedan, it's, oh, yeah, station my wagon. dad had an EH uh, wagon when I was a kid. Actually, he had one before. I think it was before I was born. May or may not have had a meeting with a telephone pole along the way, somewhere along the line as a, as a young bloke, but had another one and it had a stinking hot six in it. I remember vividly as a kid to go for a ride in the wagon up on that front <laughs> bench seat in Ballarat up and over the bumpy roads around yep. the corner and it just sounded that six-cylinder, I think it was a 202, Oh, yeah. Like yeah, not, bang on, red motor, bang on, yeah, bang on. beautiful, mate. So now I drive a wagon, so I feel like I've sort of 
you know, mine's an eight though. He had a six. I've you know, added well, he would have been a one eight six back then. Yeah, no, no I think he, he put no, it too much. I'm pretty sure it was whatever it was. It was yeah. hotter. It wasn't standard. Yeah. It, it didn't sound standard. It 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 went. It went. It was cool. It was cool. Um, you said the bench seat, though, and just let me indulge for a minute. So I'm, I'm sitting here very lucky, Blake, mate, because the, the the girl that I fell in love with and courted back then, and because back then you used to be able to lay the back seat down. It was like, so we go to the picture theatre and it was really comfy. You'd back her up and open up the back of the station wagon and that same woman is just eight yards away from us asleep in a bed. So yeah, what a lucky guy I am, eh? Sick of listening to hey? us talk. <laughs> exactly. Corey's you finished out there? <laughs> Corey State's question, if you have to choose between driving a Commodore or a Larder for the rest of your life, which would you pick? This feels like a real dilemma. Mate, Larder. No, easy question. Larder every day of the week. <laughs> um, speaking of Larder, remember Brock did Larders with Alan Gower? That yeah. was about the time you had a bit of it because I think a lot of people and maybe some of our younger listeners who know you from the broadcast and know you from your, your latter part of your racing might not know that you did drive for Brock for a period there. Yeah. Um, Peter was actually quite helpful in my early career when I'd won the Formula Ford Championship. Um, I was telling you earlier, he, he actually unpaid, wanted to help, did a video, which I've still got and one day I will give you a copy of it, where he sat in a studio in Melbourne and – um, flattered me um, to help me go overseas, and so he like a re- recorded like a testimonial, recorded video like a testimonial where there was vision in it of you know racing and, and get behind Mark. He wants to go to Europe, and you know we, we should be as a country getting behind him. Blah 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 blah. And it, it was just wonderful that he did that. And then he gave me we did that test day then at uh, which was not long after I won the Formula Ford Championship. So I'm only a young bloke and a Sierra, right? Now seriously, so a Formula Ford is. Low, sleek, low centre of gravity, plenty of grip, made to race. A Sierra is tall, skinny, massively overhorsepowered, right? And back then, these because these were the early Sierras, remember? Yeah. I, I drove a Dick Johnson one four years later and it was much nicer. The early Brock Sierras, I can tell you, the throttle was like a light switch, number one, <laughs> and number two, you had to put it on two seconds before the turbo wound up and cut in, right? So to drive it like that was Wait, really good. wait, wait. Oof. So we did a test day at um, at Winton and uh, Peter had a passenger seat in there and I've got to say to everyone who doesn't believe Peter's as good as everything, they say, I oh, can trust me, he's as good as everything you see and read. I sat next to him as a race driver. He's incredibly gifted as a race driver. But that was the day Barry Sheen stuck that car in the wall and wrecked it. And Brock never ever let him forget <laughs> it, did he? Never let him forget it. Oh. But you, dro- you raced... You didn't race at Bathurst, though. You raced at No, because Rouse. Sandown. Remember, Rouse was coming out for Bathurst. Yeah, but he, he couldn't, couldn't do Sandown. Yeah, so he drafted yeah, yeah, him yeah. to do Sandown in the team with Brad Jones. That was a great experience. But, man, for a young bloke, what an eye-opener to jump in a Sierra. <laughs> Jesus. Well, that was tough. It, it's funny because I've looked in our photo files over the years whenever things have come up for various things, and that Sierra from that 89 Sandown 500, it's you and Bradley – so you two again, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> it might have 10 Falcon wasn't the first time you both strung no. together. You'd had a go at it before. But I remember that there was something strange about there was a, a – who someone borrowed someone else's helmet. Like it's not – was Bradley wearing Crompton's helmet or you wearing Crompton's helmet or something like this? It was really weird because I looked at the photo and went, What? 
it's, it's a bit of a strange one. I'm going to dig it out. I'm going to find yeah, it. Dig it out. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Someone borrowed someone's spare helmet that weekend or something. I don't know what was going on. But cause didn't you – yeah, so Rouse came for Bathurst, so you were surplus to requirement and yep. um, did, did you think at Sandown. But didn't you have a little drama at Oran Park? I did have a little drama oh. at Oran Park, yeah. We were out there doing a test day and um, I – and I, I do remember quite – Distinctly, so I, I spun the car, backed into the wall. I mean, not huge damage, but enough to be embarrassing and have to have to pack it up. And when they were packing it up, there was actually a lot of oil on the because it was it was kind of odd the way it. I mean, I'm a driver; you make errors occasionally. That now, whereabouts was this at Oran Park? Oran Park, yeah, but whereabouts on the track? Oh, uh, it was over at the. Um, oh, geez, what was it called over there? Yamaha. I think they used to, we used to call it Yamaha, didn't we? The fast S's over the back. Yeah, coming yeah, up yeah. out of there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and there was a lot of a lot of oil on the back of the car, like a you know, like a, a mist. You know, when you get a, like a diff overheating and it out of smears the breezer, it's, it's smeared on the rest of it. Yep. And and I honestly couldn't figure out why. I just it just didn't make sense to me the way the car had rotated and spun. Blah 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 blah. And I did get a little rap on the knuckles then for mentioning that in a subsequent, you know. Discussion with the media or press or whatever. Alan Gow <laughs> made sure just, just sit down, young bloke, and shut up and drive the car. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, you are the only person I know that's won an Indonesian Grand Prix too. Tell me about <laughs> just sort of it's one of those different things. Formula Holden went – or Formula Bradman, I think it was called then at the time. Formula Bradman, yeah. Central, wasn't it? Central, yeah. You, you are, the, are you the reigning Indonesian Grand Prix champ? they have another uh, one after that? Oh, they went back over there. I don't know. Did they, uh, I don't know. They called it the Grand Prix again. Oh, I think, well, therefore you are the reigning and defending well, I, champion. I, I, I wouldn't claim that, but anyway, they uh, Tommy Sahato. Yeah, remember yeah. the president's son competed yeah. with us, and we all had to sign a document that he could put a Formula Three Thousand engine back in his car. So we've all got the Holden V Six in there, and Tommy's got the Formula Three Thousand. But the uh, caveat was he had to start from the back of the grid. But I think he stuck it in the fence at the first corner anyway. Oh, it wasn't a problem. No, it wasn't. But that was a, that was a really cool experience because they really laid it on, um, uh, and, and it was a great period to be doing Formula One. You know, I just thoroughly enjoyed competing with Scafi back then because again we were open wheel of people. I was surrounded by good open wheel of people. I think we did that. Pretty good as a team, um, and they obviously did very well as a team. So they were, I think it was good for both of us in terms of, um, you know, honing the skills as race drivers, you know, and Scafie wanted to bigger and better things. Mm. Have you seen uh, – there's a th- so remember a few years ago, or a couple of years ago now, you did that great Channel 10 opener for Bathurst where you drew the track and you talked around it and you were riding all over the whiteboard. Have you seen the video on YouTube of a, an American – Watching that, giving his take on that. I, I, I only thought of it earlier today because some people had asked me about it. But have you seen that? Do you know? Can, can I say? Because I know you're not a massive socials and all that no, guy, but no, have I you don't. seen that? Have you heard yeah, of that? Can I be honest with you? I, I actually, I, as a rule, I don't go back and look at stuff I do. So I don't like to, tis what it is, you know, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. And I'm not a TV person, but I did, I've actually only just seen that very recently. I had no idea they did those sort of things where a guy sort of sits there and goes through and talks it to it or, or, or whatever, you know, it's. Can I, can I just say, um, Noons, that that was the brainchild of Matty White. Was yeah. Um, and mate, I, I haven't done much at all in my life on my career, but that's probably one of the better things I have done. And I can't even put my finger on why it worked so well on that day, other than Matt didn't tell me much about what he had planned. He said, "Come down, I got an idea for the opener. Just come down. I'll tell you when you get down here and." 
we go down there and walk into the studio. He's got this area blacked out with curtains, just a square box, about as big as a bedroom, with a pane of glass in there, right? It was, we, it was literally freewheeling. And he said, um, let's go outside. Go outside. And he's brought a little cooler pack in with six beers in it. So seriously, we sat he, outside he the studio. He knows you very well. Yeah. He knows you very <laughs> no, no, well. We had a few beers and just loosened up and, and he kept he kept sort of – and I can see he's smart. He just kept prodding and asking, but tell me about this. And he said, and if you were talking to Mark Winterbottom when he was driving for you about the suit, what would you say? How would you say it? You know. So, so at the end of all of that, after a couple of beers, he said, I want you to just go in there and I want you to talk to that track, just do a lap in your head and draw or whatever as if you were talking to one of the drivers that you were employing back then how to do how to do a lap of Bathurst. So we he said let's just let's let's rehearse one. So they had a little machine there that put those little snowflakes in the air that little insects or looked like a bad dandruff or whatever it was, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, I I can't believe it. I just freewheeled it and that was it. We didn't do a second take. One take wonder. Was it well? Yeah, it was a wonder. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how. It, but it, but it just worked and it, and it made it only work because I genuinely he put me in the zone and I was in the zone and talking about the things that are important around that lap. And, of course, they cut it up beautifully and yeah. um, was it was just a clever idea to do that on a on a, on a a glass. So, you know, yeah, I'll probably go to McGravy. That's probably the, the best bit of TV I'll ever do. One take. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying from a personal point of view it's – So that just makes me think of something. So if you want Larko to do something really amazing, you have something that he's very passionate about <laughs> – that he's very enthused about, that it's fully authentic, but you feed him three beers beforehand. <laughs> yeah, which is why I failed again here in this podcast, mate, because you only brought two beers. <laughs> <laughs> mate, you can't have it all. You can't have it all. You can't have it all. Mate, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your hospitality. Yeah, thank you for pleasure, your, your support of what we do at V8 Sleuth. I mean, you know, this thing's been going for about 10 years now, back when we were working together in the broadcast stuff, and you're always a, a big believer and um, – and a bit of a coach on some of this stuff of how we should do it, how we shouldn't do it, and do this and do that. So I hope we've uh, hope we've done it right along the way, and we've we've got yeah, the history mate. of the Larco cars <laughs> tucked away in the database, and we'll add to it. Well, over it's funny, can years. I say when I need to know any history about my own cars, I actually ring Noons. Is that bizarre? <laughs> well, maybe that's not bizarre. I bet you that happens a lot on the pit lane. A little bit, a little yeah, bit. exactly. Right. Let's ring Noons and find out about it. So look, can I just say thank you to your listeners and your people writing with questions because it's just like our telecast, mate. It's these people and the love of our sport, their sport, that keeps this thing absolutely going around. And just as we spoke earlier, mate, um, I think even where we're going with the sport now. So much of it is not about where we're going, it's about where we've come from and you're a big part of that and so are they, so um, magnificent. There you have it. You asked, I delivered. Mark Larkham, times two on the V8 Salute podcast, powered by Repco. That was a great chat. I really enjoyed that. I mean, I didn't have to do much work, to be honest. I really sat back and just listened because you just wind Larko up and away he goes with golden content flowing right the way through. We could have gone for another couple of hours, but certainly I can't do that all the time. People are giving me their time. I can't take even more of it. And it was starting to get dark. It was time to get home. I was more panicked, I think, leaving Larco's farm as I drove back to the Gold Coast thinking, geez, I hope I closed the gate. None of those cows get out overnight. Now, I'm pretty sure I did. The phone has never rung to say that there's been an issue, so I think it was all okay. Uh, I really enjoyed that. As you can probably tell, uh, Larco is, he's in or out. There's 
he's no, there's no half-heartedness. He's very um, on or off, in or out. Um, that's what makes him so great. And the Larco that you see on the TV or that you might meet at the racetrack over the journey is exactly the real Larco. There's, it's not put on. It's not a uh, turn camera on, turn Larco on situation. That's exactly how he is, and that's why we love him, and I know that you guys love him so much too. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the pod as much as I did. We've got some really great podcast chats coming up over the weeks ahead that are going to roll us through into the end of 2022, and we're already planning for 2023. We never sit still. If you've got some uh, guest suggestions or maybe a topic suggestion or a question for a Q&A, send it to us via the contact page on the v8sleuth.com.au website. There's a link also in the show notes to this episode to take you there as well. That's me done. Enjoy your week. Join us next week for another episode of the V8 Salute podcast powered by Repco. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.